It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Abby Hornacek. I'm Ben Dominich. I'm Dana Perino, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, November 13th, 2023, I'm Mike Emanuel. The Israel-Hamas war is just over a month old, with some prominent Americans noting the Israelis are fighting Hamas, not the Palestinian people. Hamas is not just the enemy of the people of Israel. They are the enemy of the people of Gaza. They are using them as human shields. They are stealing their aid, and they are stealing their hopes and dreams. And Lisa Brady. More than three years after lockdown, there are many empty offices across America, and that could leave many smaller banks on the hook. They don't have as much flexibility. They're not going to roll over these leases, but they might not get paid. So that starts to create problems for mid-sized banks. And I'm Ricky Schlott. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Israel continues taking the fight to Hamas after the brutal October 7th attack. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley on Fox News Sunday talked about what's at stake here. This is not just an Israel issue. This is an American issue. 33 Americans were murdered. They have American hostages right now. Israel is the tip of the spear when it comes to terrorism. And we have to remember, Iran is the number one state sponsor of terrorism. And when they say death to Israel, they say death to America. Retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel John Myers, who is running for Congress in Virginia, says Hamas has a dark vision. Do not forget that Hamas launched this with a political objective in mind, and that was to reclaim their victim status. They don't care if they lose civilians. They don't care if they even lose their fighters. Really what they're fighting for is the future of a Hamas ideology and that next generation of of fighters who will grow up to hate Israel. But some on the political left, including Brittany Ramos de Barros, a retired army captain, is calling for a ceasefire. The politicians who resist ceasefire in the name of security, know nothing about war. Because anyone who has any humanity left in them and has actually confronted the utter horror and absolute carnage of shockwaves rippling through their bodies knows how absurd it is to believe that security can be created through violence. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ruled that out in this interview with ABC's David Muir last Monday. I think there's a, uh, the question of a, a ceasefire. The president himself has said that a ceasefire would be a surrender to Hamas. It would be a victory for Hamas, and you would no more have it than you would have uh, a ceasefire after the uh, al-Qaeda bombings of uh, the World Trade Center. And many Americans continue struggling to understand the cruelty of last month's massacre. My heart is is broken for what is happening there in the Middle East. Senator Katie Britt is an Alabama Republican. The events of October 7th um, were beyond comprehension. When I went to Israel and I was on the ground, we saw the footage, the GoPro footage of the terrorists that morning and the the things that they did um, in taking and slaughtering innocent lives was something I didn't think human beings were capable of. Mm -hmm. Um, When you talk about a ceasefire, you know, we look at what happened here in the U.S. A lot of people have said, what about Pearl Harbor? This is very similar to 9-11. And what I would say is it's the difference. While there are similarities 
similarities, the differences, the enemy, Hamas, not the Palestinian people, Hamas, is literally next door. And they have said, as of as late as last week, saying, we will come back again and again and again and recreate October 7th. So taking innocent lives from babies to, to the elderly, um, to everything in between again and again until we eradicate the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And so there is no way um, that there can be any type of ceasefire until Hamas is gone. And when it comes to what Prime Minister Netanyahu said, of course, they must get back those innocent lives that are being held hostage by Hamas um, prior to a ceasefire. Conditions in Gaza continue worsening with reports this past weekend that Gaza's main hospital, along with the other hospitals in the area, are running out of generator fuel, leaving them powerless to help patients. With things like this happening, do you believe Hamas is starting to feel like their backs may be against the wall? And do you think that may help the chances of releasing the hostages sooner rather than later? Mike, I am hopeful um, and and prayerful that Hamas... um, ends this by giving back the hostages sooner rather than later. Because we have talked to the people of Israel, we've talked obviously to the prime minister, to the government, and they are sending in that aid, the food, the water, the medicine. Um, There has obviously been other um, limited resources being given. But the truth is we know what Hamas does. We know what they've been doing for years. I mean, since 2006, 2007, any aid that we have been sending into that nation that should be there for the people of Gaza, um, we know what they've been doing. They've been stealing it. And um, I am hopeful that we can hear a resounding, we can speak with one voice around the world and tell Hamas that enough is enough. You and several Senate colleagues traveled to Israel in late October, giving you a firsthand look at what the aftermath of this horrendous attack has done. Can you share what you saw and how this has shaped your view of this horrific attack? Yeah, well, um, what I saw was really beyond comprehension, Mike. It was as a mom, as a wife, as a daughter, a granddaughter, a sister, First, when we met with the families of the hostages, you know, feeling their pain, um, listening to their stories. I mean, the the most innocent among us, the babies, the the children, the toddlers that are being held captive by Hamas, being used as human shields, um, grandmothers who survived the Holocaust now going through this horrific event. You know, it just reminded me when we said enough is enough and when we said never again, Um, When we said that as a nation, we have to truly mean never again. And then when we watched the footage from the GoPro cameras of of these despicable terrorists, I mean, watching them shoot children, watching them burn parents alive in front of their children, watching them step on people's heads and cutting them off. I mean, it is the most barbaric, um, disgusting set of atrocities that anyone could ever imagine. And I believe people of all religions can exist in peace and prosperity. But what we cannot do is Good cannot coexist with evil. And when we see evil, we must take it down. Hamas is not just the enemy of the people of Israel. They are the enemy of the people of Gaza. They are using them as human shields. They are stealing their aid and they are stealing their hopes and dreams. And we need to get Hamas out of there, both for the people of Israel and for the people of Gaza. 
I also want to hear your thoughts on securing our southern border. During a Senate Appropriations Committee hearing this past week, you had the opportunity to put Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on the hot seat, asking how he viewed the current state of the border crisis. What did you think of what he had to say there? Oh, my gosh. How much time do we have here? Um, <laughs> Mike, in, in what world can the Secretary of Homeland Security not just call a crisis a crisis? We see this administration being able to call everything else crisis. We have a they called they said we have a, you know, a pedestrian safety crisis. We have this crisis. And I'm not diminishing any of these other things. But the fact that this administration will not call what is happening on our border. He came in March 29th. At that point, we had 6,610 encounters a day. I asked him if it was a crisis then in front of our subcommittee, and he said he refused to call it a crisis. Um, now, keep in mind, when he was the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security, his boss, Secretary Jay Johnson, said if we have 1,000 encounters a day, that is a crisis. Well, now, uh, the week that I asked him last week on Monday, we had 8,500 encounters on that Monday, had him in front of us on Wednesday, eight and a half times more. Is this a crisis? He said no. He, I mean, he he wouldn't absolutely not. And and the problem with that is, is like if you can't admit you have a problem, how in the world are you going to fix it? We must secure our border, and we must have policy changes. We must take a look at the asylum standard. Looking at that, put him back in remain in Mexico. Look at a safe third country policy when it comes to actual funding uh, to actually stop this crisis. And then when you look at what's happening in the interior. Our ICE officers are doing the job of many. They need more support. They, we need more ICE officers with the six and a half million people that they are um, in charge of in the interior, that they are supposed to be tracking and, and all of those things. We only have 6,000 ICE officers. It's ridiculous. And if he wants to be serious about getting this under control, we have to have interior enforcement. We have to properly fund ICE. We have to properly fund detention beds. This is not rocket science. We know how to secure our border. We have done it before. It is time to do it again. All right, Senator, let's talk about your book. God Calls Us to Do Hard Things, Lessons from the Alabama Wiregrass. What inspired you to write this book that gives readers a really personal look at your story and how you've made it to where you are today? You know, so after the um, the runoff, we had a really pretty contentious primary. And I had some people approach me and say, hey, do you want to kind of write about this primary, write about this campaign, uh, you know, kind of a tell-all ascension? I thought, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> not interested. <laughs> uh, thanks, but no thanks. Um, then after the general election, I had a couple of people approach and say, look, you're going to be the youngest Republican female ever elected to the U.S. Senate. You'll be the only Republican female with school-age kids in the United mm -hmm. States Senate. You know, would you would you write about all of the, and I said, you know, thanks, uh, but no thanks. And and I also reminded them, I said, guys, I've got like 12 Twitter followers, just so you know, uh, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm related to half of them, right? <laughs> um, so, um, so I just said, you know, thanks, but no thanks, not interested. And then they came back at the end of January, beginning of February, and I had gone and spoken to Dunbar Magnet School. And one of the reasons I ran, you know, as a mom, um, my husband and I, you know, as, as parents looking to raise our kids, there's so much about our nation that we feel like cementing the values that make this nation so great. It's just critically important for the next generation. And I don't know that we are doing a good enough job of that. And, and so, you know, 
wanting to fight for for those values and fight for the American dream for them, you know, that that was what drove us into running for the Senate. And so I had given a speech there. um, And that's one thing I, I do really enjoy doing is talking to young people. And what I do is I tell them, all the things that I, where I failed, all the things that I did wrong, um, lessons that I learned, because I think in life we see people's peaks, right? And Mm -hmm. if you don't see them, then Mike, just go check their Instagram feed, because I assure you, you'll find them there. And, (laughs) you know, I really believe it's the valleys where God uses those. If you're honest about how you got there, and this day and age, I think we choose to blame people about how we got to that low valley instead of taking a step back and realizing, what we could have done differently, or if there was stuff that we did that 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 um, landed us in that spot. And so being honest about how you got there, and then also allowing God to work on you in that moment, in all moments, to show you His purpose. Because I think that we all have a different purpose. God has a different purpose for us, but we need every single person to stand up and to step into the arena. So this book um, is chock full of lessons learned for the next generation. So whether it's the young or the young at heart um, that are attempting to spark a new lease on life, um, just being able to talk about those, making sure people understand what makes this nation so great and, and you know, hard work and, and treating people with dignity and respect and, you know, taking responsibility for yourself and what you do. Um, I'm hopeful that somebody reads it and it gives them the desire to do more, to, to be more, to be better, because I think every generation is called to do hard things. And mm-hmm. so encouraging people to step up and stand back up when life knocks them down and get engaged and do hard things. That is ultimately what Americans do and ultimately what I believe we need to do um, in order to get this nation back on track. The youngest woman to ever serve in the Senate and the first woman from Alabama to do so. Two huge milestones. Senator Katie Britt, an inspiration. Thank you so much for your time. Have a great week. Thank you. I appreciate it. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This is Ricky Schlott with your Fox News commentary coming up. The COVID-19 pandemic has left a lot of empty offices in its wake. Commercial buildings that used to be full, or mostly, and haven't filled back up as people went back to work because many are now working remotely, at least part of the time. Between work from home, interest rates, all the damage, I'd say the commercial office real estate market today is probably for an investor worse than the Great Depression. Thor Equities CEO Joe Sitt telling Fox Business. Right now, the industry is sort of a bit frozen because so many of the owners are just dealing with the problems they have. But having so many vacancies in downtowns across the U.S. can also lead to problems for the economy, while at the same time there's a shortage of housing, especially affordable housing. The White House says that's led to local leaders exploring efforts to repurpose commercial buildings. Now there's a multi-agency federal effort to help create more affordable housing by supporting the conversion of high-vacancy commercial properties to residential use. The plan includes new guidance for grant programs and federal financing, hoping to spur more projects near transportation, for instance, and possibly help cut climate pollution at the same time. 
These projects take time, though. WeWork recently ran out of that. The office space subletting company, once valued at $47 billion, filed for bankruptcy protection last week after losing billions as demand for office space plunged. They might be able to, in some markets, sign some contracts with some companies. But when you look at how broad the WeWork network is, it's hard to see how that's the answer. Peter Morisi is an economist and business professor at the University of Maryland. Basically, they were renting space and releasing smaller spaces. And that's a very tough market to make money at. Because the people that buy these small spaces, I mean, they don't have a lot of money to spend on offices. That's why they're doing this. My feeling is the model was ill-conceived from the beginning. Also, a lot of the folks that felt they had to have a physical office no longer need to. I mean, you can run your business at the beach with a set of headphones and a personal computer. You just have to deal with the background noise of the ocean. <laughs> Who typically holds leases on office buildings? Is it large companies? Do some buildings have multiple lessees? And, you know, who's on the hook when these things are empty? Well, in the beginning, the people who rent the office space are on the hook unless they go out of business. They have to honor their leases if they rented the space. If firms go into bankruptcy, if they go to Chapter 11, leases go out the window. Generally speaking, offices are leased by many tenants, not just one. It's like an apartment building. Companies will take one floor, another company will take another floor, and things like that. So you've got a problem basically here uh, that these buildings, as the leases go up, they don't get renewed or people want less space, and they have to offer much lower rents. Folks might not be aware of this, but it's not like a home mortgage. If the building is rented and you rent it out for less than so much per square foot, you're in danger of violating the covenants on your loan. And therefore, you technically are in default at the bank. And the banks don't want to pull that string, but they have bank examiners to deal with. What's more, mortgages on buildings don't last 30 years the way they do on your house. They recur every three, five years or so. What is really frightening is a good deal of this space is not mortgaged at the very largest banks. You know, we like to think of Donald Trump going to the Chase Manhattan Bank or something. That's not what's going on. Reality is a lot of these leases are in mid-sized banks that are very kind that failed earlier in the year, you know, Silicon Valley Bank sort of place. And so they don't have as much flexibility. They're not going to roll over these leases, but they might not get paid. So that starts to create problems for mid-sized banks. This is a big problem. It sounds like it could be, you know, an even bigger problem for the overall economy, because as you mentioned, you know, when some of those smaller banks failed earlier in the year, I mean, that was a big deal that sent the stock market tumbling. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of ripple effects there. When we think of the financial crisis, Great Recession, we think of the guy who remortgaged his house three times in, in two years. That was a problem. But there were many other problems. There were derivatives, trades, and things like this. This is a multidimensional problem. And so I don't think that the least problem on office space by itself can bring the economy down. But you have that. You have the student loan problem. And you have a lot of junk bonds that were issued when interest rates were very low. Basically, companies that, whose credit rating is below investment grade or close to it. They were borrowing money at 3%. Now they have to borrow at 7 or 8 
that's going to be a problem because a lot of them, if you look at their books, as it was for a lot of these companies, it was a bit of a fantasy them paying back. But it's seven or eight. It makes no sense at all. And so what's going to happen is people that broker these loans, package them up, sell them to investors, are going to find very few investors willing to buy them. So there's a problem out there. And part of the problem is the Federal Reserve taking its sweet time about dealing with inflation. You know, these pauses are not helpful. It's best to slay the thing all at once so you can take interest rates back down again and then start to focus on this problem. Because this is a problem we're going to have as these loans unwind over the next several years. Hmm. Empty offices you know, also have ripple effects for the communities around them, the small businesses that rely on foot traffic, for instance. That's one of the reasons the White House is now trying to help foster the conversion of office buildings to housing. Um, It sounds like a good idea on paper. You know, can that work? Well, not the way the White House does business. You know, first of all, the buildings themselves are tough to repurpose. You know, most places, building codes require that every living room, like uh, your living room, your family room, but most of all, your bedrooms have a window. Maybe you can have an interior bathroom, but you've got to have windows in the rooms in order to get an occupancy permit. A lot of these buildings are big squares with too much interior space that doesn't have access to a window. So unless you're going to have bedrooms that are two feet by 20 feet, it doesn't work out and you can't fit a bed in that way. Who'd want to live in a space like that? That's one thing. Another thing is that we have tended to zone so that offices are concentrated and residential is concentrated. These areas don't have the infrastructure necessarily of a commercial kind, uh, like grocery stores and schools and, and so forth, to support residential housing. Now, that can be fixed. But what is Joe Biden worried about? Well, he's worried about social justice and the environment. He wants to cut the pollution that comes out of these buildings. And he wants low-income housing as well as, you know, getting all these buildings off the shelf, which means basically what they're going to do is once again in Manhattan, to the extent they can do this, create housing for basically people at the bottom and people at the top. The people in the middle that are fleeing the city, people that make one hundred to four hundred to seven hundred thousand a year. Remember, his four hundred thousand cap on middle class doesn't work in New York City. They're leaving the city because the rents are too high, and there's not going to be a lot of relief in these buildings. When you talk to you know developers, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to build stuff that rents for twelve thousand dollars a month. Well, that doesn't make sense, and so they're really not addressing the people that really pull the country, the middle class. Rather, everything is a social justice locomotive for them. And as a consequence, this is not going to end well. What about around the country, you know, before the White House announced this effort to, you know, help more buildings be converted from office space to to housing in some way? Is this a trend anywhere else around the country? Is this something that um, is is trying to be done already? Yeah, this is this. This replicates itself in other major cities, cities like Chicago and so forth. Uh, so they, they, it is replicating itself. And it's kind of a shame because we're putting up new office buildings uh, in smaller cities to replace these buildings because we can't move office buildings. You can't put them on a flatbed of a truck and truck them away like you can a house. So it is replicating around the country. It varies in degree depending on the nature of the local industry and the nature of the problem. But if you're talking Chicago, New York, Seattle, 
and so forth, Minneapolis, they got problems because they building off, they built office buildings over the last 30 years, pretty much the same every place. The big squares with a lot of interior space, cubicles, neon lights, and uh, for, for lighting and so forth, and, you know, kind of bad air conditioning. Wow. So it sounds like, especially in the short term, the real concern isn't sort of what to do with the space, but the fact that so much of it is empty and a substantial part is tied to small and mid-sized banks. That's a problem. And the fact that it is not configured adequately to create housing. In order to make one of these residential conversions work, the buildings have to be sold for very low prices and zoning laws have to be waived. If you think it's tough to get an immigration bill through the Congress, which it has been, you try to get a change in the zoning laws through the City Council of New York or Chicago. And all the interested groups come in, and there are many of them, and they make their demands for social justice or to sustain the substance and fiber of neighborhoods, and you can just pull your hair out. In the end, you can't just focus on, okay, we're going to do conversions. You have to get a way of trying to hit six goals at once. And that is, we're going to do something about the pollution these buildings emit. We're going to do something to create low-income housing. By the time you do all those things, you basically come down to you have to have some very high-priced tenants from floors three through 30 to pay for the social programs on floors one through three. And that replicates itself in major cities across the country, because if there's anything that clones in America, It's progressive city councils from one jurisdiction to another. Peter Marisi, economist and business professor at the University of Maryland. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. Here's a look at the week ahead. Monday, American Education Week begins, hosted by the National Education Association. Each day of the week has its own theme to help celebrate the public school community. Tuesday, President Biden heads to San Francisco for the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, also known as APEC. While there, he'll meet with Chinese President Xi on the sidelines of the event. Wednesday, Dolly Parton invites her fans to a global first listen event at theaters across the globe. Those who attend will be the first to get a sneak peek of songs from her new album. Heading into the holiday season, we'll get the latest update on retail sales. Thursday, another union-related movement. It's the Red Cup Rebellion. Starbucks workers in various stores will strike to demand the company respect its union rights. And Friday, if Congress doesn't figure things out during the week, lawmakers have until the end of the day to avert a government shutdown. And that's a look at your week ahead. I'm Anna Eliopoulos, Fox News. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Ricky Schlott. What's on your mind? Last month, Britain's Education Secretary Gillian Keegan announced upcoming guidance from the Department of Education that recommends school principals prohibit phone use both during classroom time and free time throughout the school day. 
The department says the move aims to support the wider work the government is doing to raise standards in schools by increasing students' focus and reducing distractions. That's after researchers from the British government found that 29% of secondary school students say they use phones in all or most of their classes. England joins Portugal, Italy, and France, which have all moved to ban phones in classrooms. I think it's time more school districts in the United States do too, and that's because I know firsthand just how valuable school phone bans can really be. I, like most of my Gen Z peers, was 10 years old when I got my first iPhone. Looking back, screen time robbed me of memories I surely would have made playing outside with friends or spending quality time with family. But I'm grateful that my school memories are untainted by my phone, thanks entirely to my private K-8 New Jersey school's decision to prohibit phones outside of backpacks. Administrators put the fear of God into us by confiscating any phone spotted on campus, then requiring us to take the walk of shame to the principal's office, accompanied by our furious parents, to pick it up at the end of the day. Of course, kids still use their phones in bathroom stalls or snuck quick glances into their backpacks to check notifications. But phones were largely out of sight and out of mind. As a result, my elementary and middle school memories are filled with playground games, conversations in the cafeteria, and undistracted time in classrooms. At my high school, however, phone policies were left up to teachers who largely shirked off the responsibility to punish in-class texters so as not to be the bad cop. Kids scrolling during lessons, masses of zombies looking down at their phones in the hallways, and lunch tables full of students sitting right next to each other but rarely conversing. Looking back, I believe my peers and I lost social time and learning time, something that could easily have been prevented by a simple policy change. In fact, a 2015 landmark study from the London School of Economics determined that banning phones in schools added 6% to test scores and the equivalent of an extra hour of learning weekly. My high school experience is a cautionary tale, and more American policymakers should be following the UK's footsteps to ensure this doesn't happen in their districts. Of course, here in the United States, we rightfully give state and local officials the power to set school policies that work for their students. While the National Center for Education Statistics reports 77% of American public schools have implemented a phone ban in some form, that number should be closer to 100%, and the bans should be stricter, considering that 97% of 11 to 17-year-olds report being on their phone during the school day. Parents are waking up to an obvious reality. Kids are losing their childhood to devices. They shouldn't lose their education, too. Gen Z were the guinea pigs who proved that allowing phones in schools hurt lesson learning, friend making, and memory forming. Now it's time to ensure that Generation Alpha doesn't meet the same fate. I'm Ricky Schlott, the author of The Canceling of the American Mind. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear Podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.